0: Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Last week we talked about worship, worshiping God through growing together. And so the focus last week was on our desire to worship God by being together as a body of Christ. We can worship God by ourselves, but... He has commanded us to gather and to stir one another on to love and to good works through worshiping Him together. And so we focused on the benefits in the history in God's Word, why we worship together as a body of believers, and the benefits we have from worshiping God together uh, because of our gathering as a body of Christ. So this week you might think I was going to build on that, but. Going to the next step actually may seem a little bit counterintuitive to you because as we talked last week about why it's good and important that we gather together to worship God and the benefits we have to do that, I want to talk this week about worshiping God through everything that we do. Worshiping God individually, as, as ourselves, through all of our lives. And I want to start by reading this first uh, passage here, Psalm 34, just the first three verses. and then I want to talk about what it means to worship God through all of life. so let 's go ahead and read these first three verses. It says, "I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt. His name together. Let's open with a word of prayer. God, we ask for your help as we study tonight the importance of worshiping the right person, of focusing on the right things. We ask that as we look at these different passages, uh, that you would guide us to your truth, into your truth, and help us to apply it appropriately. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything is worship. Uh, This is counter to what we think of as worship normally in life, but everything we do is worship. We never begin to worship. Instead, we aim it. I'll say that again just so you can think about it. We never begin worship. We aim it. Every single decision you make, whether consciously or, or subconsciously or unconsciously, You're choosing to worship, and it's not that you're just starting to worship, it's that you're redirecting what you are focusing your worship upon. We're always worshiping something or somebody. So to worship God is to humble everything about ourselves and to exalt everything about Him. So when we talk about worshiping God, it's more than just saying, I worship you, God. It has to do with something actually going on inside of us and outside of us. It's an internal thing and an external thing. For example, we often sing songs that say things like, I worship you, God, or I exalt you, God. But we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that just by saying that, we're doing it. That's kind of like me passing by my wife and saying, Callie, I hug you, and then walking on. Okay? Saying, I hug you, doesn't substitute the actual physical contact of hugging her. And the same thing is true with God. We don't just say, I exalt you, God, and that equals or is equivalent to exalting God. We have to actually do it as well. God intends us to exalt him, not only with our words, but also with our lives. You know, Romans 12.1, an often quoted verse says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does the Apostle Paul say is worship in this passage, or this particular form of worship? It's offering our lives as a living sacrifice, which tells us that it has more to do with just me saying something or even thinking something, but it works itself out in what I actually do. Worship begins in our hearts, but always works its way out into visible actions. We can't confine worship to just what we do on Sunday mornings here at church. It's going to work its way out in our ordinary and mundane things that we think and say and do every single day of our lives. So tonight we want to talk about how we can exalt God both in our hearts and in our actions. So that's our two categories, exalting God through our hearts and exalting God through our actions. We're going to talk about five different ways. These aren't all-encompassing or all-inclusive, but five different ways we exalt God through what we do in our hearts and through what we do working itself out in our everyday actions. So let's start with exalting God in our hearts. And the first way that we do that is through our thoughts we exalt God through our thoughts. I'm going to ask you to turn to several passages tonight, so keep your fingers nimble. We're going to start with Romans chapter 11, verse 36, Romans 11:36. And for each one of these, I'll have a passage or a couple verses to read, and then we'll talk about how it is we exalt God through that particular means, and in this case, through our thoughts. Again, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 11:36, "For from him and through him and to him are all things. to him be glory forever." Amen." Paul recognizes in this verse that all things are from God, and all things belong to God. Okay, everything belongs to God, and He is in all things. And just recognizing that God exists is, in a sense, a form of worship. In Psalm 14.1, the psalmist says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. A foolish person who is without God says God does not exist. And the very fact that we acknowledge God's existence is a form of worship to Him. Every time that we evaluate the lens of our lives and we see God, in what we're going through, that is a form of exalting God or worshiping God. For example, we can exalt God at any moment simply by asking, where is God in this picture? And your picture might be painful. Maybe it's your car breaking down. Or perhaps it's a spouse leaving. Or an unexpected bill. Or maybe it's being let go by an employer. All these different things are circumstances that many in this room have faced at one time or another, and they're part of the picture of our lives. And the very act that we take in our hearts of recognizing God in the picture is an act of worship. In each of these situations, we have the choice to forget God and just bemoan our condition, or we can remember that He is present and active in our lives. He's working through the things in our lives for our good and for his glory. And when we step back from our picture and we say, God, I have this flat tire. I don't understand why I have it, but I know that you planned this from before the foundations of the world that I would have a flat tire. And you're working for my good and for your glory. Help me to remember that. That's worship. You didn't even have to say it out loud. You're very thinking of God in that situation, and recognizing Him as being present and active in your picture, that is a form of worship, a form of exalting God. So God is always aware, He's always involved, and He's always working all things out for our good and for His glory, and when we recognize that, we are exalting God in our hearts. Secondly, we exalt God in our hearts through our love. I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. Mark 12, 30 and 31. This is, again, a very familiar passage. And Jesus speaks, and we're just going to read the first verse for now, verse 30 of Mark 12. And he says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, whenever we talk about love, I feel like it's important that we define what it is we're referring to, because often when we refer to love, we're talking about different things. In this case, when we're talking about love, we're speaking about the desires and the motives behind our relationship with God. Love speaks of wanting... Enjoying and treasuring Christ. So it's more than just following rules or memorizing verses or going to church services. These are all things that can be done rightly and, in fact, should be done. But when we talk about love, we're talking about our motive behind what we do. So when we talk about loving God and exalting God through loving Him, it has to do with our own heart motivation and our heart condition as to why we're doing what we're doing. Meaning, I, I follow these rules because I love God. Or I memorize these verses because I love God's word and I want it to be accessible at all times. I want to meditate upon it. It's not memorizing them because somebody requires me to or I think that if I just memorize enough verses, then I will be a more godly person. It's not st- stacking these things up in a list so that I can become more godly. It's out of of a right heart motivation of loving God. Loving God turns duty into delight. And when we love something, we attach worth to it. Remember last week when we talked about worship, we just defined it simply as ascribing worth to God. When we love God, we are ascribing worth to Him. People who exalt God by loving Him look forward to spending time in God's Word because they love to hear from Him, not because they want to check off a box of spiritual accomplishments. We love God by the way that we interact in our own motivations towards Him, our own personal affections toward Him. But it doesn't just stop with the relationship we have with God. If you remember the next verse up there, verse 31 addresses our outward focus towards others as well. Verse thirty one says, The second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You know it brings no glory to God if we claim deep affection for him while harboring ill will towards people. In fact, first John four twenty says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Ouch! You know, when you're thinking about this, we can say that we love God all we want, but then if we turn the other way and despise our brother or just despise anyone for that matter, we hate people, We prove that we don't really love God because we're not emulating the kind of love that God shows and desires for us to overflow, that he's poured into our hearts. Loving others, even when they're unlovable, exalts God because it reflects his heart. His heart toward us and his heart towards others. God loves us with a love that transcends our sinfulness. He loves us in spite of our sinfulness. And so when we hate other people we show that we don't want to be like God. We show that we don't want to emulate His faithful love towards others and towards us. And yet, when we love people who are unlovable, we very much represent and reflect God's love because that's exactly the way that He loves us. And so we can exalt God through our very act of loving Him and through loving others. Furthermore, We love God through our faith. And with that, we want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians is kind of a hard letter to read sometimes because of the circumstances to which Paul is writing. And in this case, Paul is addressing some squabbling going on amongst the Christians at the Church of Corinth, in verses 21 to 23, Paul writes, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So we can't get into all the circumstances of this passage. But Paul is reminding these believers that God owns all things. Christ owns all things. If we are Christ, we own these things as well. And faith reminds us that in Jesus Christ, God has given us everything. And because of that, faith reaches out to God with open hands and believes that He will fill them because of His character and His promises. Meaning we look at God and we trust him and we say, God, I believe that you're going to meet my needs because you've already promised that you would do so and I trust your character that you're going to keep your promises. That kind of trust exalts God because you're, you're believing that God is going to fulfill what he's already promised that he's going to do. And Paul is, is guarantee, guaranteeing to the Corinthians, you own these things, trust God, have faith in Him, that He's going to keep His promises. There's three things I want us to notice that our trust or belief in God, our faith in God, and exercising that faith puts on display about God. In other words, when we display faith in God, these three things are shown to be true about God. This is how we exalt God, by showing faith. First of all, exercising faith towards God puts his wisdom on display. When we trust what God says, even though we don't understand the end, we're proving that God's wisdom is greater than our own wisdom. So rather than me saying, God, I really feel like my plan is actually better here, and even though I know I'm supposed to trust you, my way looks a whole lot better here. Okay? That's exalting my own wisdom. When I show faith in God and say, God, this is what your word says to do, and even though I don't understand why it says to do this, and it goes contrary to what I think is best, I'm going to trust what your word says. That displays to the world your trust in God's wisdom. It shows his wisdom to be glorious. So, our faith in God shows God to have immeasurable wisdom, but it also displays God's power. Because when we have faith in God to do something, we're trusting that He actually can do it. When we say, God, I believe that you're going to accomplish what you have promised, then we not only believe that what He's going to accomplish is better, exalting His wisdom but we're also trusting that he can actually do it. And often that's hard for us because we are very self-sufficient people. At least I know I am. I often think, you know, if you want to get it done right, you have to do it yourself. And so it's hard to relinquish that control to God and say, God, I know you're going to do it best, and I trust that you actually can. Because so often we're used to not trusting other people. We're used to only trusting ourselves. And so when we actually have faith in God, we're exalting His power and ability to do it. Especially when we know we can't. And finally, it displays God's faithfulness. Exercising faith toward God puts His faithfulness on display. We acknowledge God's promise to provide for us, and then we actually trust that He will. Because those first couple things, we may trust that God's plan is best, and we may trust that He can do it, but do we actually trust that He will do it? And when we place our faith in Him and believe that He's going to accomplish His plan, we're displaying God's faithfulness to an unbelieving world, a world that doesn't know who to trust. When we say God's going to come through, He's always been faithful, and we exalt Him for His faithfulness. This is how our faith brings glory to God. It's by displaying God's wisdom, His power, and His faithfulness. Fourthly, we exalt God in our hearts through our gratefulness. Let's look at Psalm 30, verses 11 and Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. In this psalm, of course, many of the psalms were written as songs of gratefulness or thankfulness to God for particular things that he had done. And this one is no different. We're jumping right into the middle of a psalm. And the psalmist writes, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. A grateful heart acknowledges God's lavish grace and kindness toward us. You know, our culture is not a very grateful culture. And as a result, we are not trained naturally to be grateful people. In fact, instead we're trained to be people who expect things from people like we deserve it. And when we are grateful to God, we are all the more showing that we don't deserve it, what He's given to us. And that's more than just one or two quick things like, God, I didn't deserve to be saved. Thank you for that. I mean, that's, that's so shallow. <laughs> he's given us everything. We were just talking a few minutes ago about how all things are ours. We trust God for all things because he's guaranteed them to us. And when we're grateful for all things, we recognize that we don't deserve any of them. When we fail to be grateful, instead, we, we, we acknowledge that we do deserve all of these things, Many of us know very well the verse James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. When we recognize that everything we have, all these good gifts are from God, we exalt Him. When we're grateful for these good gifts, we exalt Him. We lift His name. So it's more than just saying, I exalt you, God. I exalt you, God. There, I've done it. I've worshipped him. It's recognizing in your heart and in pouring forth a spirit of gratefulness for the things that he's given to us. God, I don't know why you chose to save me. I mean, the more I get to know about me, the less I'd ever want to save me if I were you. God, I don't know why you chose to give me a wonderful wife. I mean... I may have thought I deserved her when I was younger, but the more and more I've been married to her, the less and less I realize I deserved her either. And that's probably true of all the good gifts that we have. We think that we deserve them, and then we recognize we don't deserve anything, except for bad things. And our gratefulness exalts God, and the fact that we have a grateful spirit is so unique in our world, because people aren't grateful people. And when we're grateful to God, we're showing to these people who don't believe in God that God must be somebody very special, that somebody actually is grateful for all of these things, that they recognize that they don't deserve these things. So we exalt God in our hearts through our thoughts, through our love. We exalt God in our thoughts through our faith and our gratefulness. And finally, we exalt God in our hearts through our longing 2nd Peter chapter 3 2nd Peter chapter 3 In this particular epistle, Peter is writing to warn the believers to cling to the gospel in spite of the changing culture. He's encouraging them to be holy, to be steadfast in clinging to the truth of God. Recognizing that God is, Jesus Christ is going to return. He's promised that He will, and He's going to. And as a result of His return, His impending return, we're supposed to live in a certain way. And so when we come to 2 Peter 3, uh, looking at verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I want to focus on those last few words there. According to his promise, what God has promised, We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We exalt God through our longing for what is to come. And at first glance, you may think, this doesn't seem to be a good thing, because longing makes us think that somehow we're dissatisfied with what God has given us. But we have to step back and really frame this whole question and idea and recognizing that today things are not all right. And that's not God's fault. It's the fault of our own sinfulness and our world as it's affected by our sinfulness. We are under the effects of the curse still. And some people battle chronic, almost unbearable pain. A young mother is devastated by the death of her five-month-old. We've got huge advances in medicine, and yet there aren't enough advances to prevent people from losing their lives to AIDS and other diseases. Our world is still completely affected by the effects of sin, and Romans chapter 8 tells us that creation groans for the day when the world will be made new. And we just read in Second Peter about the fact that that is going to happen. And we should long for that day because, in our longing, we are exalting Jesus who has promised to return and make all things new. Longing for something to come isn't being dissatisfied with what God has given us. Longing for the future is being so overjoyed at what God has promised He's going to do and expecting that He's going to do it. That's worship to God saying, God, all signs don't point to the fact that you're going to come again, according to the world. But I trust that it's true, because you've promised that you will. And you have told us, according to these signs, that it does seem like that day is drawing nearer and nearer when you're going to come again. And we look forward to the day when you're going to make all things new. And we're not going to have to deal with suffering. We're not going to have to deal with diseases We're not going to have to deal with injustices in society. Instead, all things will be perfect. And the fact that we long for that day, like the psalmist says, how long, O Lord, over and over again. He's not dissatisfied with what God has given him. He is excited about what God has promised for him. How long, O Lord, till you return and make all things new? I exalt God by waiting for that day. So we can exalt God through internal aspects, through our hearts, but we all understand that exalting God, or we ought to understand that exalting God doesn't just live in our hearts, it has to work itself out in actions. So I just want to talk about quickly five ways that we exalt God in our actions as we've exalted Him in our hearts. And first of all, we exalt God through our willing obedience. Look at John 14:15. John 14:15. This is a short verse. Jesus speaking. And he says, "If you love me, then sing over and over and over again that you love me." Now, I was just hoping that you would actually read the verse and know I was wrong. So he didn't say that, although that's following in the footsteps of what I said earlier. It's not enough to exalt God by just saying that you exalt God. It's by doing something. What does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obeying God isn't legalism. Okay, there are people who would lead you to believe that's the case. That's a, that's a swinging of the pendulum way too far to one side. In fact, obedience to God's commands, though it won't earn us a place in his kingdom, we don't believe that, it does show us more eager to reflect the character of the one who saved us. and said, you shall be holy for I am holy. He wasn't kidding about that. He does actually want us to live in a certain way. And although living that way doesn't make us saved, it shows that we are and it shows that we love him. And we want to live in a way that will please him. Submitting to God's commands tells others that we love him and that his laws are good and worthy to be followed. When we obey God's commands, we're telling people what God says is actually important because he commands these things. And the fact that I take seriously what he commands shows that it's valuable what God says. I value God's word. So we exalt God through our willing obedience. Secondly, we exalt God through our specific praise. Psalm 106, verse 1. Again, we turn to the Psalms frequently when we talk about worship because these are songs of worship. These songs were written for the Israelites. In fact, we could often call the Psalms the book of Israel's hymn book. So Psalm 106, verse 1 the psalmist writes, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. You know, Rarely does the Scripture exhort us to praise the Lord without spelling out why. Don't you think that's important? That's the thing I think we forget about often. When I was a kid, I often thought this was the coolest invention ever. I was I was a young child. When I would pray, I would say, "God, thank you for everything," and I pray for all the prayer requests. There we go. I covered everything. I didn't need to say anything else. Like I said, I was a young kid here, okay? So when I said that, I really hit all the topics. But what was I not? I was not specific. And God wants us to be specific when we pray. The same thing is when we praise. He wants us to be specific. We don't just praise God and say, I praise you, God. There we go. That dries up really fast when the trials and temptations come. When the hard times come and we just say, I praise you, God. I praise you, God. Well, why? I don't really know. I just, I praise you, God. That doesn't get us too far. But when we can recount to God why we praise Him, and that really gets down deep in our souls so that it overflows when we praise God. That's when it's going to last us through the hard times. Like the psalmist just wrote, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, because He's good. Why is He good? Because His steadfast love endures forever. And in fact, some passages say that over and over and over again for emphasis. Forever. You thought the second time was enough. No, the third time. No, the fourth time forever and ever and ever. Just keep saying it. And this is something I really think we need to imbibe with the songs that we sing. We don't just want to sing that God is good over and over again. We don't just want to sing that He's love. We want to tell why He's love or why He's good. What is it that He did? What specifically about His character makes Him worthy of being praised? And that is so important in what we choose to sing. We try to find songs that are full of reasons why to praise God. And hopefully it's through our own experience, and hopefully it's through his word, because his word is filled with reasons of why we're to praise him. If you look throughout the Psalms, it's filled with specific occurrences that God had led the Israelites through. Talks about him leading them out of Egypt, or delivering them from some army. And I think it's appropriate for us to put in our own spiritual heritage when we sing these kind of things. Well, He didn't lead us out of Egypt, but He did deliver us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His glorious light. He has turned us from death into life. These are things to sing about. These are all true about what God has done for us, and he wants us to specifically praise him because the more things we can show to be true about God that are specific, the more glorious he becomes, the more we're exalting him in our actions. If I just say, I praise you, God, or I exalt you, God, and that's all it goes into, and I don't really have much more specifics, you may doubt how real that praise is or that exaltation is. You know, just like, you know, what's your favorite Bible verse? Well, if you don't know any, that's, that's a trouble. You, you, you haven't really understood the Word of God. Well, if you can't praise God for anything in particular, I really doubt that you're actually praising God. So through specific praise, He also wants us to exalt Him in our actions through our godly speech. And let's look at Matthew 12, verse 34. Matthew 12, 34. Again, speech is something that we do frequently. We talk every day. And if we're to exalt God through the mundane things in our lives, we can expect that speech is part of that. So what does Jesus have to say about our speech? It says in Matthew twelve thirty-four, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Since our hearts are always exalting something, it follows that our words reflect what our hearts are worshiping at any given moment. So when we speak words of truth and encouragement and love and grace, we exalt a God of encouragement, truth, love, and grace. If we speak words that are coarse and dirty and reflective of a sinful character, well, we're not worshiping God because He's none of those things. We exalt God through godly speech because we prove to be like Him. It's it's an integral or necessary part of our worship is the way that we speak. This is often when you're working in a secular environment how people know that there's something different about you. Because... You may act a certain way, and they're going to observe that, but when you speak totally different than everybody else, which isn't honestly all that hard, if this is true about you, it speaks volumes about the God that you serve, about the God that you worship, by the way that you speak. We're to exalt God through our obedience, through our specific praise, through our godly speech, and through our grace-motivated serving. Why do we have to be specific about that? Well, we don't necessarily exalt God just by serving. Unfortunately, that's, that's just the case because there are so many different reasons why we could be serving. We could be serving because we want people to notice what a great door opener that we are, or what a great projectionist that we are, or what a great singer we are, or how good we are at blank. We have all sorts of motivations as to why we do things. And so that's why we're specific about saying we we exalt God through our grace-motivated serving because He has commanded us to serve, but we're to do it out of hearts of grace. Meaning this isn't something that I have to do out of duty, or I just have to do this to check off my spiritual box. And it's not something I do to exalt myself. It's to just completely have people forget me and see Jesus Christ, what I'm doing. So we're supposed to exalt God this way, and there are very specific ways he gives us to do this. Uh, He gives us abilities, first of all. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. We exalt God when we use the gifts that he's given to us. We actually in a sense, slam God when we say, I'm not going to use what you gave to me because I don't value it or because I don't think you're valuable enough to serve with the gift that you've given to me. You say, that seems kind of harsh, but look inwardly, it's true. If we're not willing to use what God has given to us for a very specific purpose, that speaks volumes about what we think about God and his purpose for us. So he gives us abilities, He gives us desire. In Philippians 2.13, he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Meaning that when we serve, because of the motivation of grace, it's not something that we can necessarily do in and of ourselves. It's a desire that God gives to us. He empowers us to serve that way. We say, God, I know you've called me to do this, but I know I cannot do it out of my own will or desire and do it correctly. I need your grace for this. That's necessary for, ma- for grace-motivated... Boy, don't say that five times. For grace-motivated service. And also God gives strength. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So we understand that God gives us the strength we need to serve. It wasn't my own strength that allowed me to do what I did. It was only of God. And all these things are characteristic of us serving in a grace-motivated fashion. And finally, God gives us the perfect example in Jesus Christ of somebody who served In Philippians 2, 6-8, where Paul writes, "...who, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This is a perfect example of grace-motivated serving. So God gives us everything we need to serve, and when we do it out of the right motivations, we exalt God. We show that He's worth serving, and we show that He's the only one who can make us and allow us to serve in the way that we ought to. And then finally, we exalt God in our actions through our faithful witness. Let's look at Psalm 57, verse 9. Psalm 57 verse 9, our final verse for tonight. Psalm 57 verse 9 says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. We talk about what has touched us most deeply. You notice that when you try to get to know somebody, and they're maybe not the most talkative of people. But if you get anybody on just the right topic, they will talk. And sometimes it's amazing to find out what they will talk about. It really reveals what they care about. And when we're touched by God, when we're given a salvation that is so glorious as we have been, we talk about it. And the psalmist says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. He's talking about those who are unsaved. When I worship you, God, I'm going to do it in front of all these people who don't know you, because when I do that, they will see and fear and trust in you. Our worship to God is something that leads people by our faithful witness. It shows them that God is worthy of our praise. And that causes them to think about that. I'm not saying in every instance where people see you praise God that instantly they're going to be saved. But the idea here is through our witness, people are impacted by that. They notice there's something different by whom you attribute things to, by whom you exalt. And evangelism or telling others the good news of the gospel is simply praising God in front of those who don't know Him. And we ought to do so because through that, we exalt God, we prove Him to be glorious, we worship Him through just the very mundane things of life. So as we wrap up, I just want to remind us we have no power in of ourselves to exalt God in the ways we've talked about. We can't do it by ourselves. Our actions will always be stained by our own selfish motivations. We've already talked about that. If we we're trying to exalt God in our own strength, We're always going to be stained by our bad motivations, meaning I want to be seen by others exalting God. Oh man, that kind of ruined the whole purpose, didn't it? Or I can do this, God. I I can I can worship you. Well, you've completely forgotten the story of the gospel. We can't if he didn't love us first, we would still refuse him. That's the gospel. And so we have to keep coming back to the gospel and remembering that the gospel is the greatest encouragement we could ever have in seeking to exalt God. For many reasons. Mainly, Jesus lived a life of perfect worship and obedience. He never sinned. Every decision he made was perfect worship of his holy God. And through personal faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect life is credited to our account. And that is tremendously freeing to us. Because this means that when we fail to exalt God like we should, the Gospel reminds us that we're forgiven. We don't have to be concerned that because we failed this time, that I'm, I'm not really sure if He's going to give me another shot. Is He going to accept my worship in the future because He's always going to remember what I did that one time? No, the Gospel reminds us that Jesus Christ has already credited his perfect life to our account. So when we fail, he forgives us and we keep going. And when we succeed, the gospel reminds us to be grateful. Because we remember that in the gospel, there was no part of the gospel in which we did anything to deserve it or to achieve it or accomplish it. The whole thing was Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so when we exalt God, we we do it correctly, we do it out of the right motivation, and we lift Him up in front of other people, and they see it and they fear and trust in Him, we don't say, wow, I'm getting pretty good at exalting God. We say, God, it was really all You. The only response I have is to be grateful that You would use somebody like me who's failed so many times in the past, who never deserved it in the first place, and yet, through the grace of the Gospel, You've given me the opportunity to exalt You through what I have in my heart going on, or through what I do. It's all because of the gospel. It's all because of grace. So, as we turn, turn away from the past couple of weeks, weeks, we've talked about why it's important to worship God as a community of believers, as a church, in our groups. It's important to worship God because there's very important benefits that God has promised to us to worship Him together. But we also have to remember this. Worship doesn't just happen once a week, or twice a week, or even three times a week, when we're gathered together in a church or even in somebody's home. Worship happens when you step outside the door in every decision that you make all throughout this week. And as a worshiping people, if we expect to come to God's house and suddenly have an amazing worship service together of exalting God, when all through the week we've been exalting ourselves or exalting some other idol in our lives, we're we're grossly deceived. The worship that we have as a community of believers is only so wonderful as it's an overflow of what God's been doing in our hearts all week long. Every decision we make, every experience we encounter, is an opportunity to worship God, to direct our focus, to exalt God, and when we live a life of exalting God each and every day, and we gather together then to worship Him as a community of believers, we give Him true worship because it's just an overflow of what He's been doing all through our lives, all because of the gospel, all because of grace. So let's exalt in, in the gospel. Let's exalt in His grace. Let's worship God this week, not as a matter of legalism, not as a matter of another thing to check off the box. Oh boy, every Okay, I made a decision now. Check that one off. Okay, I'm becoming more and more godly. Yes, yes. You know, Something I can write down is my, my godliness journal. You know, the idea here is worshiping God through everything that he's done for us, just living a life out of gratitude to him, out of grace because of the gospel. Something that he has both commanded us to do and something that he's given us the power to do. And that's something we can rejoice in. Let's close with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for the glorious truths that we've been presented to through your word this evening. And we just ask that you would help us to live our lives each and every day remembering that we are worshiping creatures. You've given us a responsibility to worship, and every decision we make, every, everything that we encounter is an act of worship, and help us, Father, to To believe that, and then to direct our worship towards you, not towards ourselves. Help us to trust your grace, to cling to your grace, to recognize that when we fall, it's not over. You've forgiven us. You allow us to get back up and to serve you again the next opportunity we have, the next decision. Father, help us to glory in the gospel, that wonderful, truly marvelous gospel that is promised to us all things in Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. In his name, amen.